Unreal city. Under the brown fog of a winter noon, Mr. Eugenides, the Smyrna merchant, unshaven with his pocket full of currents, CIF London, documents at sight, asked me in demotic French to luncheon at the Cannon Street Hotel, followed by a weekend at the Metropole. So Mr. Eugenides walks into, the world liter into world literature on the 16th of October in 1922 with the first publication of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. He emerges from the sour brown fog of London, but he trails acrid smoke from Asia Minor, wearing the gaunt face of a refugee, a person of permanent exile. He is arguably even a ghost. And I might as well set out at the beginning of this lecture that in Aegean folklore, um, ghosts do not appear at midnight, um, but smack at noon in the middle of the day. The unreal city here is London, but there is another city name checked in this passage. Smyrna, that in the catastrophic Great Fire, which had raged from September 13th to, the, to September 22nd of 1922, so little more than three weeks before the poem's first appearance, had become, in some respects, almost literally unreal. Was this dissonance felt by the first readers? I think it must have been. Um, newspaper headlines on both sides of the Atlantic had been dominated by the story and by its aftermath for weeks. Um, numbers of those lost to the fire, to violence, to desperation at the key, including death by drowning, to deportations, to the interior, could have been upwards of 100,000. Um, at some point, over 300,000. Um, people were gathered on the quay at Smyrna, and the aftermath of that was its own um, humanitarian crisis. So the story dominated Western media for weeks and months afterward. Um, Hemingway's harrowing short story on the quay at Smyrna, based on eyewitness accounts, appears as late as 1930. And I'm going to show you all a bunch of um, newspaper headlines from that time, mostly from September of that year although a few are also from October, and um, they're from all over. I don't vouch necessarily for any of the numbers. All of this is somewhat disputed, um, but to give you a sense of uh, the tenor of the media. Now known in its modern incarnation as Izmir, Smyrna's most ancient version was founded in the 11th century BCE and is one of the traditional um, birthplaces of Homer. As an Ottoman city for hundreds of years, it was known as infidel Smyrna for its large population of Christians, Armenian and Greek Orthodox, a strong Jewish community, and a population of Levantine foreigners, um, English, French, and so on, who might have been Protestant, Roman Catholic. Um, so it's a prosperous, polyglot, cosmopolitan trading center exporting raisins, figs, wheat, carpet, um, tobacco. I love this um, particular map because it contains a whole line of the wasteland. I don't know if you can see it. Um, Athens, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. Um, but you can see um, where um, Smyrna Izmir um, is situated, and there's a little island, a couple of islands up. That is the island of Lesbos with its main city of Mytilene, and that will come in a little bit later. Um, so as the Ottoman Empire reeled from defeat after World War I, um, Greece was encouraged to pursue territorial ambitions of the great idea of greater Greece. Um, so this is what those greater ambitions would have looked like. 
1919, Greek forces landed in Smyrna. Um, these forces uh, commit some of their own atrocities, including um, killing uh, unarmed prisoners and throwing them into the harbor. This triggers a wave of ethnic violence where hundreds of Turkish um, citizens of the city are killed and maybe 100 Greeks and um, generally sets the stage for things that are going to happen. But in September of 1922, as the defeated Greek forces retreated and Greek iridescent, iridescent, iridentist, I can't say iridentist, iridentist dreams of greater Greece collapsed, so Greek forces learned firsthand that you can't go back to Constantinople, um, a song that I might point out came out in 1953 for the 500th anniversary of the fall of Constantinople. Um, so tens of thousands uh, start gathering onto the quayside. Um, they're in a panic um, and are hoping for rescue by sea um, or evacuation by the sea. On 13th of September, a fire is begun. Um, Western eyewitness accounts say by Turkish forces and Turkish irregulars. There are also high winds. Um, so from the edge of the Armenian quarter, this fire quickly engulfs um, the Greek Christian quarters as well. And the population panics. There is a pandemonium of looting, rape, murders. Um, so eventually there are three to 400,000 people packed at the seaside um, for days and days and days at a time. Most frustratingly, uh, there are 21 allied battleships in the harbor. They stood at anchor, some so close that people tried to reach them by swimming, but these refused to intervene in any way on the basis of formal neutrality. So in one of the most chilling details, military bands on board were ordered to play loudly to drown out the screams coming from the quay. Uh, this is a detail that Hemingway cannot resist putting into his um, fictional account, and he says the worst thing was how they screamed every night at midnight. I do not know why they started screaming. We were in the harbor and they were at the pier and at midnight, every night they started screaming. Um, I will point out the newspapers were not only concerned um, with the humanitarian disaster and um, the civilians who were, they were also very concerned about what was happening financially Smyrna is a major, major port. And you can see again that the crops, this is in September, so the crops of raisins are all you know, ready to be shipped out. Crops of raisins, that is currants, Corinthian raisins, figs, barley, wheat, um, carpets, etc., and tobacco. Um, so this was also one of the concerns. Um, so mulling this crossover, I started to think of um, in the run-up to the centenary of both events in 2022, I was reviewing books on both topics. So I was getting books about the Great Fire of Smyrna, including a, a novel by Omaro Arigis. Um, I was reviewing books about the 100th anniversary or birthday of the Wasteland, like the wonderful Matthew Hollis book. Um, but what kind of struck me in my own particular corner of the world, I live in Athens, um, was that the one point of really obvious um, intersection between these two um, centenaries was not mentioned, it was barely mentioned or not mentioned. Um, in fact, roundly ignored. And of course, there's another centenary of 2022, um, which was uh, James Joyce's Ulysses, which had another um, Greek uh, flavor to it. Um, even Matthew Hollis's really enlightening and entertaining biography of the poem, which puts the poem in the perspective of um, the time, so we've kind of forgotten that feeling of post-World uh, War I and post or partly during Spanish flu and so on, um, that color the kind of doom and gloom feeling of the poem. But even this kind of skirts the topic. Hollis gives us a brief view of what in 1922 is happening in the unreal cities that Eliot name checks. Falling towers, Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, London, unreal. Hollis points out um, that, maybe I'll go back to my map. Um, Hollis points out that in Alexandria, scarred by race riots, 
Martial law was imposed by the British administration in May. In Jerusalem, mandatory Palestine, unrest had marred the fourth anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. And he says, in Athens, it was clear now that the war with Turkey and Anatolia was heading for disaster. Um, that seems like almost an understatement. The Great Fire is one of the signal events of what is known in Greece or in Greek as the Asia Minor catastrophe, disaster, although I think we have to think of a kind of Aristotelian idea of catastrophe as being that moment in the tragedy where everything turns upside down and goes pear-shaped. That, along with the exchange of populations agreed to in the Treaty of Lausanne, changed the course of history and um, the face of this area of the world. So 1.2 million Christians of Greek ancestry from Anatolia um, mostly are forcibly resettled in Greece, a country whose population was 5 million at that time. So you know the, it's one-fifth more, again, suddenly in the country. Um, 500,000, roughly, Greek national Muslims forcibly resettled in Turkey. Um, and then Anatolia, a re an area of the world that had had large populations of Greeks or Greek speakers for millennia suddenly did not. It's a deep wound to the Greeks. On the Turkish side, 1922 marks the glorious founding um, or the beginning of the glorious founding of its new nation state out of the ashes of empire. Um, so, Mulling this crossover, I started to think um, of another person from Smyrna who would interact with the wasteland in maybe the most intimate way possible, by translating it. In this case, into Greek, which we might consider the mother tongue of Mr. Eugenides, um, with his abominable French. It was originally abominable French. Um, this is Pound's changes to the poem. Um, Pound is the one who makes the quite brilliant change from abominable French to demotic French. Um, George Seferis, Oh, here's um, waves of refugees in Athens in tents um, with the Temple of Hephaestus. Mulling this crossover, I started to think of another person from Smyrna, George Seferis. So George Seferis was born Yorgos Seferiadis in Smyrna in the Ottoman Empire in February of 1900. Um, in 1914, his family fled to Athens, where he did his secondary school education. They were essentially in exile. In 1918, he became a student in Paris. He would, in fact, never return to Smyrna or to Izmir during his life. During his childhood, Smyrna represented the school year. Lessons, rain, a French governess, his deepest nostalgia was reserved not for the city of Smyrna, but for a nearby seaside village, Urla, I think it is called now, um, Vurla, and his place was the port, Scala, of Urla. Uh, where is it? Urla. And this is what he writes to his translator, Rex Warner, about these memories of um, the summer in Vurla, in Scala. The place where my family used to spend the summer holidays in those happy days, a very small village, a hundred souls or so, was named Scala. Our house was on the seafront. From the windows, I could see the islands and the sea, which was splendid. On my right hand, I had the island of St. John linked with the mainland by a jetty where we used to walk in the afternoon. It was used for quarantines of the ships going to Smyrna and in times of contagious diseases, one may think of the Spanish flu, Many ships were anchored off the island. In September, Scala was used as a port of export for dried raisins produced by the mainland. And um, we have those currants and raisins again, which we might consider that Eliot doesn't have just accidentally in this person's pocket. Um, if you're coming from the point of view of this part of the world, um, there are, the Greek government nearly collapses twice because of a current crisis, because of a glut in the current market. Um, in 1893 and in 1908. So currents kind of represent the threat of um, economic collapse. Uh, so there are these dried raisins produced by the mainland. From the back window of our house, one could have a nice view of the vineyards stretching up to the hills of Vurla, the main town of the neighborhood, 30,000 souls in my time. Splendid lads, almost all of them indulged in the hobby of smuggling tobacco, 
spoke wonderful vernacular Greek. Um, so they spoke a wonderful demotic. Like all idyllic childhoods, it seemed a paradise that would last forever, and then one day it was gone. If we skip to 1924, we will find um, George Seferis's first visit to London. One of the great things about George Seferis and biography is because he's born in 1900, I know what age he is at any point. So he's, he's 24. Um, he has his first visit uh, to England. Um, he arrives in August of 1924 in Brighton. He's supposed to be learning English. He tries to teach himself English from a bilingual French-English Shakespeare and doesn't do very well. He practices his English by speaking to his landlady's cat. Again, he does not progress. Um, in October, he, he moves to London and he describes his first pea super of a fog. Um, he's just stunned by this fog. And again, this is 1924, so this is a fog that is full of horrible coal particulate, slimy chemical things, um, you know, not maybe like the fog of today. Um, he describes this pea super of a fog in a letter. He felt like they were living at the bottom of the sea. Um, he suspects that the fog is somehow generated by the trombones of the Salvation Army. Um, <laughs> And he writes a very charming um, poem. Uh, what I'd like to, you to think about, I'm gonna read a translation, my own translation of this poem, is that he had not at this point in theory encountered Eliot at all, but I'd like you to listen out for things that sound um, very Eliotic, whether that's proof rock or the wasteland. Um, fog, say it with a ukulele. Say it with a ukulele, whines some gramophone. Say what to her? For Christ's sake, I'm used to being alone. The shabby genteel poor give mouth organs a squeeze and cry yet again on the angels. And the angels are the disease. The angels unfurl their wings, but below a stale fog gushes. Thank God, or else they'd snare our wretched souls like thrushes. It's a cold fish sort of life. You live like this? Yeah, so? So many are the drowned on the seafloor down below. The, the trees seem like coral from which all colors drain and the carts like sunken ships only whose hulls remain. Say it with a ukulele, words, words, words again. Where's your chapel, love? I'm tired of this domain. If only life were straight, then we could live it right. But fate has got us cornered, and the corner is too tight. And just what corner? Who knows? Lamp lights lamp, a wreath of mists and speechless frosts. We clench our souls in our teeth. Shall we find consolation? Day garbed with night, we find all is night, all is night. We go by feeling blind. Say it with a ukulele how the firelight would glance off the gleam of her red nails. I remember her and her cough. I think what we're bound to notice first is that the title and the epigraph are in English, um, which I can't really indicate in a translation because that is also in English. Um, I think the, the sort of effect is that Greek does not have a word that is adequate to fog, considering his experience of fog in London. Um, <laughs> you know, not omichli, not katachnia, or even nephos, which is in Athens the name that we give to our smog, is adequate to this English phenomenon. The second, of course, is the epigraph in English, um, somewhat arcane through the passage of time, but it's the title of a popular song, and it's probably meant us to point us to the following lyrics. Modern girls are tired of dreary love poems. You must give them something new. Say it with a ukulele. Um, I have made the mistake of tracking this down on YouTube so you don't have to. It's a very, very annoying song. <laughs> so some of the things we might think of that are Eliotic or that there are points of 
um, overlap, maybe, fog, a popular instrument, we think of the ukulele or the pleasant wine of a mandolin, there's a song on a gramophone, there are souls in a fog, there is direct but unattributed dialogue to souls or to shady figures, there is that Dante-ish so many, I had not thought death had undone so many, there are thrushes, we might not think of thrush as a very important word in Eliot, but the thrush is very important. There is the shipwreck underwaterness, that kind of full, fa full fathoms five, thy father lies, you know, things being turned into coral. Um, there is a lighting of the lamps. And there is the suggestion of a modern girl, a kind of flapper who might be a typist and who wears red nail polish. The poem also shares with Eliot an urban Baudelarian spleen, um, in fact, maybe particularly to the seven old men. Um, I'm not going to torture you with my demotic, abominable non-French, um, but I will read in translation. Um, Teeming, swarming city, ant swarming city, city full of dreams where specters in broad day accost the passerby, and it later mentions a dirty yellow fog inundated all space. But I'm, I'm particularly interested in this very Greek or maybe Aegean reaction to encountering this um, northern kind of darkness. Um, and here it's to the Odyssey I turn. Um, Seferis was doing a lot of uh, systematic reading of the Odyssey as a student in Paris and it comes back again and again. Um, when we think about mist and darkness and a mention of souls, maybe even the mention of the sea. Um, this leads us to the Nikia of the Odyssey in Book 11, um, which is apt in many ways. Um, I will say that my husband, who is uh, Greek, um, when he first came to boarding school in England as a very young man, he had had an English government, governess in Athens um, who was constantly making tea and filling the kitchen with steam from the tea kettle. And when he landed in um, London with all of the cloud cover and so forth, he had this vague notion, not that the trombones were causing the fog, but that everyone in England was boiling tea and it was causing this darkness. Um, so we might consider a little bit that passage in the Odyssey um, uh, where Odysseus has to sail off uh, to talk to the souls. You know, when we think of uh, the Aeneid, we think of Dante, you actually go down to a physical place um, to talk to the souls of the dead. But in the Odyssey, um, he sails to a far away place and the ghosts are kind of convinced to come up to the surface and talk to him. All day long, this is from the Odyssey, her sails were full as she held her course over the sea. But when the sun went down and darkness was over all the earth, we got into the deep waters of the, rich, the river Okeanos, the river ocean, where lie the Demos and city of the Cimmerians who live enshrouded in mist and darkness, which the rays of the sun never pierce, neither at his rising nor as he goes down again out of the heavens, but the poor wretches live in one long melancholy night. Later, the souls emerge from Erebus, which name is etymologically linked to darkness, and Odysseus communes with the dead, starting with a Theban seer who has been a man and a woman, Tiresias. For a Greek, or someone from the Aegean, this portal to the land of the dead lies at the ends of the earth, probably to the north, an Ultima Thule. You have to sail out of the Mediterranean and onto the ocean to get there. It is dark all of the time. The sun cannot pierce the fog. And interestingly, although the place itself is an entrance to Erebus, you, the passerby, can accost specters in the middle of the day. It seems to be, oddly, a well-populated place. Maybe it is even teeming with a people, um, and presumably its own language, and even a proper city, a polis. Um, Paris, say, or London. There is a second point of contact of overlap in the poem Fog with the Odyssey. It's a very spectral point, but I am going to point it out. Um, per, it's that mention of souls and fogs and thrushes, the songbirds, the migratory songbirds of the thrushes. Um, if I think about thrushes with Homer, my mind will go to book 22 of the Odyssey, 
where Telemachus has to kill, or maybe wants to kill, the maidservants who've you know, been in cahoots or whatever with the, the suitors, and he's going to hang them, and they are compared to long-winged thrushes who are trapped in a bush. Um, so that, for me, is a very vague, um, slight uh, mixture of um, allusions. Perhaps in Greek, it is that fog itself conjures up through the necromancy of rhyme, thrushes. Omicles in modern Greek, fogs, cycles in modern Greek, thrushes. The ancient Greek, the modern Greek for thrush is cycla. The ancient Greek for thrush is kichli. They are the, exactly the same word, um, maybe pronounced a little bit differently over the millennia. Possibly an Italianate kind of ch came into that kikli and became cicla. Um, so there is that sense to me, very slight, that the thrushes also have an Odyssean um, aspect to them. So when does Severus actually encounter Eliot? He encounters Eliot in 1932, and we know pretty much exactly when this happens. Um, it, we have a full account of, in theory, his first meeting with Eliot. So we fast forward to 1932, London. It's the middle of winter, uh, a few days ahead of Christmas Eve. Seferis is now a diplomat with the Greek consulate on Gower Street, a, a few blocks away from the British Museum. Scene, unreal city. Out from under the fog of a winter noon, Mr. Seferis, the Smyrna diplomat, steps into a bookstore on Oxford Street. Um, we know about this because he writes in letter to a foreign friend about how he encounters Eliot. I remember the time, he says, it now seems so long ago, when I was making my first faltering discover of London, which I thought of as a gigantic seaport and of the English language whose music sounded so much more fluid than that of our own tongue. Also the shock I experienced at the sour taste of death in the fog and the intensified circulation of fear in the arteries of the great city. It's 1932, things are not looking great on the world stage. I had no friends in England then. My only acquaintances were the crowds in the street and the museums. I often had to rush out of my house to see again a fragment of the Greek marbles, especially for some reasons, for reasons I won't dwell on, the one of the Ilissos. Some days before Christmas of 1931, I visited a bookshop in Oxford Street to look for some Christmas cards. And for the first time among the colorful engravings, I took a poem by Eliot in my hands. It was Marina from the series of, of aerial poems. And you can see there are Christmas poems. Uh, it might make sense for this to be on a Christmas display in a bookstore. Um, and what did I read? What seas, what shores, what gray rocks, and what islands, what water lapping the bow and scent of pine from that time onwards, this lovely bow, which forges slowly ahead, has impressed itself on my mind as one of the most striking figure, features of Eliot's poetry. What? In case this may seem strange to you, yes. Um, you must bear in mind that for many of us, the bows of ships have a special place in the imagery of our childhood, as perhaps the shapes of footballs or the photos of deceased relatives have for other people. Anyhow, I went back home with Marina and a small volume of poems bound in mauve material, the one that ends with the hollow men, if I'm not mistaken, the proverb from Petronius, Sivila Tithelis, made me glance at the wasteland. Um, he talks about what intrigues him about Eliot is his dramatic sense. Um, and then he says, to put it in simpler words, apart from the image of the Mediterranean marina, the poetry of Eliot offered me something much deeper, something which was inevitably moving to a Greek, the elements of tragedy. He also mentions that he's thrilled to discover that Eliot shares with him a, passage, a passion for Jules Laforgue. I was reading in those days both Homer and the wildest avant-garde journals. That's when I came to know Laforgue's work. 
Um, and he says he is very grateful to the unknown shop girl who offered me the poems I mentioned instead of Ash Wednesday. Severus mentions the prow of the ship and marina, um, but let us uh, explore for a moment. Um, he has been reading Shakespeare. Perhaps he has a sense of where marina is from. The poem put into his hands describes a scene out of Pericles, Prince of Tyre, a, a play that Shakespeare has a hand in, a play about a shipwrecked Phoenician sailor who believes his daughter Marina, who is named that way because she is born in the waves, to be dead. He takes to wandering the seas and then on Mytilene, the main city on the island of Lesbos, um, very near to modern Turkey and very close to Izmir, is presented with a maiden who is undefiled but working at a brothel but luckily, just in time, he recognizes her as his own daughter. Incest is averted, and everyone is happily reunited. It's a very, very complicated plot. Um, but we must imagine Seferis homesick, nostalgic, walking out of the brown fog, a ghost of himself, opening the poem like opening a window onto the dazzling water, rocks, and ships of the Aegean of his idyllic childhood. The poem even speaks to him in the voice of a loving father. What sea, what shores, what gray rocks, and what islands, what water lapping the bow and scent of pine and wood thrush singing through the fog? What images return, and those images will return, oh my daughter. So we imagine this sun-drenched recognition and then there's the secondary one of the wasteland, even more powerful. Once he gets his new books home to Hampstead, you know, where he's next to his neighbor Keats, um, already basking in that sparkling Aegean in the middle of winter, he turns to the wasteland. Um, so, you know, for English readers of the wasteland, there's a lot to process here. Okay, we have a mysterious title. We have an unattributed quotation in Latin within which there is Greek. Um, there is the 1922, which is not going to mean anything to us, maybe, but might mean something to a Greek reader. Um, Severus's Latin was quite good. He had studied Latin to study the law, um, and it's quite straightforward. Um, I don't think he has any problem reading it, you know, for indeed at Kumai, I myself saw the Sibyl with my own eyes hanging in a jar. We had that wonderful lecture yesterday about the Sibyl hanging in the jar. And when the boys would ask her, Sibyl, what do you want? She would respond, I want to die. Um, so Kumai near Naples, originally a Greek colony, part of Magna Graecia, hence the reason the boys in the story address the aged Sibyl in Greek. Um, but what stops him, and he tells us what stops him, is civila ti felis. There is, in fact, zero distance between this ancient question and modern demotic Greek. Only the infinitive and the answer is ancient rather than contemporary. So having opened this window onto the Aegean in one poem, he is asked tenderly in the next, what do you want in the language of his childhood? Imagine if, as you read further into this poem, which appeared in October of 1922, you meet a fellow denizen, admittedly scruffy and louche of your lost city some pages later, and in the voice of a poet who's a fellow devotee of your favorite French poet. It is hard to imagine the electric shock of this discovery, this anagnorisis, um, a salvific um, recognition. The effect is pretty much immediate, um, especially of Marina. And for Seferis, Marina and the wasteland are forever entangled, whether it's this moment in the shop, um, he entangles them in his mind, and that now works for me also. The Marina seems to be a kind of answer of hope to the desert of the wasteland in, in many ways. It's felt almost immediately. He writes in Christmas, um, uh, about a line of foreign verse um, that has to do with Odysseus um, and so forth and the light of the Aegean. Um, in his essay on Cavafy and Eliot, um, because he does also associate these two poets, the pivot of recognition will again be the historical inflection point of the date of 1922. So there's a secondary kind of recognition that happens much, much later. Um, about Eliot and about Kavafi. Um, Seferis quotes this Kavafi epigraph 
those who fought for the Achaean League. So the Achaean League were basically the Greeks who were fighting against the Romans. Um, Valiant are you who fought and fell in glory, fearless of those who are everywhere victorious. If Dias and Critolaus were at fault, you are blameless. When the Greeks want to boast, they will say of you, our nations turn out such men as these, so marvelous will you be your praise. Written in Alexandria by an Achaean in the seventh year of Ptolemy Lathyrus. So Sepphoris writes, you know, this is a brilliant poem. The first six lines sound like Simonides. But what is the point of the tailpiece, the coda, written in Alexandrian by an Achaean in the seventh year of Ptolemy Lathyrus? Years passed, he says. Then one night in blacked out Alexandria, a few days after the Battle of Crete, I remembered this epigram. George Seferis is at that time a diplomat with the Greek government in exile because the Nazis have taken over Greece. The poem was tragically actual. Perhaps because of this, and perhaps because I was in the city of the Ptolemies, suddenly and for the first time, I appreciated that the poem was written in 1922 on the eve of the catastrophe in Asia Minor, and almost without thinking, I reread these lines as written in Alexandria by an Achaean the year our race was destroyed. Kavafi's poem is ostensibly about 146 BC, the Battle of Corinth, um, where uh, Greece becomes forever under the thumb of the Romans. Corinth is sacked, the men are slain, the women and children are sent into slavery. The two generals who failed um, go off somewhere and commit suicide. Uh, this becomes associated with 1922, and the Greek leaders who were in charge of that do get taken to Athens and executed the trial of the six. He then points out that the wasteland of Eliot was also written in 1922. Between the end of the First World War and the beginning of the years preceding the next war, to simplify a great deal, it can be described as an epic of the decline of the world in which we are still living. Seferis adds, let us now look at a passage from the first part of the poem. It describes an encounter between the poet or Tiresias. Um, Eliot sort of says that Tiresias is the principal personage of the poem, but Seferis takes it kind of one further. The speaker is always Tiresias. The eye of the poem is always Tiresias. Um, and that bit where one I knew in the city of London early in the morning. Um, this is again Seferis quoting. Unreal city under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many I had not thought Death had undone so many. Oops, that's not the right one. Um, then I saw one I knew and stopped him, crying, Stetson, you who are with me in the ships at Miley, you, hypocrite lecture, mon semblable, mon frere, there's my abominable French. Um, who is this Stetson? Seferis asks. He was, the poet or Tiresias tells us, once with him at Miley on the occasion of the destruction of the Carthaginian fleet in 2060 BC, and we shall meet him again in the third part of the poem under the name of Mr. Eugenides and in part four, Phlebas the Phoenician. Much here is of interest in Seferis's interpretation. Um, there is the connection between 146 BC and 1922. Um, and when Kavafi says, in, nine, in 146 BC, when others are everywhere victorious. The Romans are victorious not just against the Greeks in 146 BC, but against the Carthaginians in the Third Punic War, um, and they are destroyed, the Carthaginians are, um, as, a, as a nation. So we have this conflation of 146 BC and 1922, but now Seferis adds 260 BC effortlessly to the litany of historical catastrophes. An Anglophone reader like myself, who has looked up the Battle of Miley, will perhaps think of it as a Roman victory. The first time Rome gets the better of the seafaring Phoenician-related people, the Carthaginians, in a naval battle. I think we're kind of taught to look from the side of the Romans, not the side of the Carthaginians. Um, but the Greek reader knows better. Stetson is a ghost. The Romans are everywhere victorious and he and the speaker are on the side of the losers. Um, Stetson is one of those 
uh, things. People think a lot about like who is Stetson? Why is this word here? I, it, for me, it's the most American moment of the poem in more ways than one. Here's Eliot in a Stetson. Is there something of a Missourian tip of the hat here? The Western hat in combination with another battle of Carthage, that one at Carthage, Missouri during the Civil War. So I think for someone from Missouri, also mentioning Carthage may have this uh, context as well. Um, so Seferis reads the poem from a very Greek perspective, the figures walking out of the fog, um, an Odyssean Nikia made obvious by the presence of Tiresias, Mr. Eugenides is a phantom associated with the one-eyed merchant, the drowned sailor, um, but also with Stetson. So what happens then when he does get around to translating? So in April, um, I think of, 20, of 1933, he starts translating the wasteland. In his letter to a foreign friend, of course it is April when he starts, in his letter to a foreign friend, he talks about his relationship with Eliot. The fact is, I attempted to translate the wasteland into Greek for two reasons. First, because I had no other means of expressing the emotion which Eliot had given me. And secondly, because I wanted to test the resistance of my own language. I think we think of translations as being on a spectrum from foreignizing on one extreme to nativizing on the other extreme. So um, the translator either is trying to bring home, this is a really weird poem in a language that is not mine with cultural references that are not mine. That's one experience of reading the poem. Or I'm going to completely translate, transfer and transplant this poem into my own language. Obviously, Seferis is going to go for that. He is nativizing the translation or Hellenizing the translation to such an extreme degree that it really is its own poem in Greek, and it's a very important poem in Greek. He is not the first translator um, to do uh, The Wasteland. That belongs to Papuzzonis in 1933, but it's maybe the most important translation. Um, I have some comparisons with a much more recent translation that is very foreignizing, that is, it's making it sound like an English poem. Haris Vlavianos did one for the centenary of the poem um, in a, a bilingual edition, so you've got the English on facing pages. Vlavianos is an Oxford-educated Greek poet. His English is perfect. His Greek is perfect. He also has the advantage of 100 years of scholarship on the wasteland. Whereas Seferis is entirely self-taught. He's an autodidact when it comes to English. He, when he's translate, translating Eliot's notes, goes down all of those rabbit holes, reads those works, which he then also translates into Greek, and his notes are Eliot's notes plus his own notes to the Greek reader about Eliot's notes. Um, <laughs> we can see even right from the covers um, the extremes. So Vlavianos, um, it's T.S. Eliot. You know, T is T or it's Tav, Sigma Eliot. Uh, the wasteland is hard to translate. Um, he translates it as the ungenerative earth, um, the unbearing earth, um, and it's a bilingual translation. But look at Seferis. Um, right from the first letter, he has completely Hellenized T.S. Eliot. Because T.S. Eliot, that stands for Thomas, which is Tomas, which is a theta, not a ta. So from the very first el letter, um, Eliot has been completely nativized. We have not, we have the wasteland is the deserted land. And then if you look at the first pages of the poem, this is also clear. Um, we have, you know, maybe what the English reader would expect. Um, but Seferis makes a big point of putting 1922, which is going to have a completely different um, effect on the Greek reader um, right up there. And he doesn't bother to give you a note on this. He's like, you know, here is some unmitigated unmediated Latin and Greek. We could do worse than go directly to the passage that we've been looking at. Um, unreal city under the brown fog of a winter noon, Mr. Eugenides, this morning, a merchant, unshaven with his pocket full of currants. Um, you see, this is, comes right after those wonderful bird sounds when Eliot is talking about um, Procne and Philomela and Tyrius and the metamorphosis of the nightingale and the swallow and the hoopoe. We have this bird sounds. We're going to get to the bird sounds. Um, but right away, there's a problem in Greek with unreal. That's not an easy thing to translate. Um, what Seferis does is he makes it non-existent, unexistent, uh, almost undone city 
the city which is not, if we want to go Hausmannian on that. Um, we might expect for city polis, you know, uh, poly in, in modern Greek, um, but instead we have politia, which is closer to polity or city-state. Um, so it has more of the sense of a government. Um, I, my personal theory on this is he's gone down um, Eliot's rabbit holes and he's found out that we're going to look at the city of God, which is de civitate, um, and he's kind of translating that sense of city as polity into the Greek. Um, when we get to Mr. Eugenides, the Smyrna merchant, Smyrna is put forward in the line and is an adjective rather than the city itself. And that seems to be to put Evgenides and stuff. Evgenidis and Staphidis at the end of the line and to make a kind of rhymed couplet out of it, which if you look in the English, it kind of is in English also, where you have merchant rhyming with current. Um, his, there's, we don't need to say currents because we know that raisins is meaning that. Um, CIF London, I think Elliot says something complicated about that, but my understanding is it means cost insurance freight. Uh, and this is in the voice of a London Greek merchant. So instead of saying CIF, he just says Tsif. Tsif Londra. <laughs> so Londra is a very um, uh, colloquial, um, kind of quaint, old-fashioned way of saying London. In Severus's notes, he says Londina, which is the more formal way. But here, it's Chief Londra. Um, documents on site. Um, he, there's not really a way to do demotic French in Greek. I mean, it'll sound very weird to say his demotic French in Greek. So he kind of, maybe not realizing what Pound has done, goes back to abominable French, um, his cheap, low-rent French. Um, Cannon Street Hotel is just put exactly as it would be spoken by a Greek, so it's just transliterated. And then Metropole in Greek, um, again, anything that is English in the poem will be put into Greek letters. He'll leave French as French, he'll leave Latin as Latin, um, Dutch as Dutch, but anything that is English will end up being in um, Greek letters. Metropole suggests in Greek the metropolis, the mother city, and maybe also the metropolitan, the archbishop, whom we might think, um, being so close to Smyrna, um, was hanged on the key. Um, this is of Lavienos's version. Um, he does something else with Unreal um, and various other, you know, he makes it a little closer to what maybe the English sounds like. Um, and they're both doing the bird sounds. Let's get to the bird sounds because this is actually one of my favorite bits. So in English we have twit, 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 um, jug, jug, jug. Oh, this hasn't worked out. Sorry, this is, the spacing is wrong. Um, I hope you all be able to sort it out. Um, this is my own fault with slide. Twit, 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 jug, 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 jug. So rudely forced Teru, Elliot. So Vlavianos is going to make it very foreignizing. That is to sound as much like English as possible. Um, simply does as well as he can. Um, Greek does not have that short I, so it actually sounds more English. It's tweet, 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 tweet. Um, there is no J sound in Greek, so that makes jug a problem. Still, he does the best that he can. Um, Tav Zita has a za, zug, 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 zug. Um, it's very weird looking in Greek, I think. I'm not a native speaker, but it looks weird to me. He leaves Teriu um, in Latin letters. Seferis does something altogether different. Um, so Seferis has been very dutiful. He says when he starts translating the wasteland that he spends seven hours a day on it for months. He goes after it like a student. He tracks down every reference that Eliot mentions, and he tracks down references that Eliot doesn't even really mention. So he goes and he finds out that the source is from a play by John Lilly, um, where there's a song, what bird sings, so sings, yet so does wail, oh, tis the ravished nightingale, jug, 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 teru, she cries, and still her woes at midnight rise. Um, so then he thinks, okay, this is a play. Do I have a play I can go to for bird sounds in Greek? That would be the birds um, in Aristophanes. And he goes and he finds these wonderful bird sounds. So for one thing, we have something very close already to tweet, tweet, twit, twit, twit. Um, I'm not trying to scan this. I'm just trying to make it sound like bird sounds. Tio, tio, tia, tio, 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 tinks. We have um, in 
the uh, Aristophanes. So tiot, tiot, tiot um, is basically almost exactly the same thing. But he has a problem what to do with jug, jug, jug. The nightingale in um, Aristophanes sings this beautiful, elegant um, Greek poem. Doesn't make a bird sound. So he goes looking for a bird sound, and he finds it in the clamor of the swan's wings. Um, this clamor being a kind of joyful, festive shout, um, yakon. And he translates that into yak, 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 um, and leaves Tiryu in the original. When we get to what the thunder said, um, we are going to have a few more sounds um, that we have to cope with in our Greek. Um, I'm including this passage from the cicada onwards because even though we have not the cicada singing, a negative in poetry lets you have your cake and eat it too. And the cicada is the only element of the Aegean summer that Marina has neglected to include. The cicada will return to us at the end. Eliot's thrush is a North American hermit thrush um, whose song he says in his notes, quoting Chapman's Handbook of Birds of Eastern North America, um, its water dripping song is justly celebrated. Um, so we have here not the cicada and dry grass singing, but sound of water over a rock where the hermit thrush sings in the pine trees. We have the thrush in the pine trees yet again. Drip, drop, drip, drop, 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 drop but there is no water. Um, Vlavinos, we will see, um, tries to get the hermit thrush in there, the, the cicla eremite, the eremite thrush, as if it's kind of a nightingale via Keats, and again, simply transliterates the, the onomatopoetic uh, English sound, which looks really weird in Greek. There, you have to use a, a new and a tav to make a hard D sound. Drip, drop, drip, drop, 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 what is poor Seferis to do here? Well, the first thing, he doesn't make it a hermit thrush. That's a North American bird. That's not very nativizing. Let's just put it back as a thrush, and then it can be an Aegean thrush or a Mediterranean thrush. But what does he do with the sound? Um, he doesn't, it looks like it might be something found out of Aristophanes, but as far as I can tell, this is completely original to Seferis. He says, Vrix, Vrox, Vrix, Vrox, Vrox, Vrox a sound, I think, which is wonderfully evocative of the dripping of water. It doesn't really mean anything in Greek, but it is etymologically extremely suggestive of water. Um, vrexis in ancient Greek means a wetting. Um, vrechi means it is raining. Vrochi, also in modern Greek, is the rain. Vrechi, again, it is raining. Um, so this is a wonderful drenching sound. Vrix, vrox, 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 vrox my favorite moment in his translation. Um, we are rounding the corner. Lions made of sheep and the undarkling thrush. Cicla, cicli. So right away, um, one of the things that happens with Seferis and Eliot is that his critics say he sounds too much like Eliot. Um, and Seferis takes his response from Valerie that a lion is made of assimilated lambs, although admittedly Eliot doesn't strike one as mutton. Sometimes the flock seems less assimilated than at other times. A quick glance at Stratis the Lassinos on the Dead Sea, Stratis the Lassinos is an alter ego of George Seferis, is very Eliotic. We have Eliot come Baudelarian, Jerusalem, the ungoverned, this is a Vikili Sherrod translations, Jerusalem, ungoverned city, Jerusalem, city of refugees. Sometimes you see at noon, um, the scattered of black leaves, um, the migratory birds um, that are passing overhead. As often in Greek folk song, migratory birds are associated explicitly with refugees and with exile. Um, this is from his visit in July of 1942, a very dark time in the war, um, a visit to Jerusalem and mandatory Palestine, while Seferis is with the Greek government in exile in Cairo. And Seferis numbers himself among these refugees. And you can see also um, this, um, this is the place, gentlemen in all caps, it's, that's in English in the poem. And it looks a lot like, hurry up please, it's time in the poem. I mean, there's so many things, it really feels like a pastiche of Eliot. 
But he does come around to something that is truly assimilated and that is Seferis, although it has a lot of Eliot in it. And that is his five-part poem called Thrush. Notice here, though, it is Kikli, not Tsikla. It is the ancient word for thrush, not the modern word. And it is not the bird, but the name of a ship. Um, which we will find out in the poem. In fact, there are lots of birds in the poem, but there are no thrushes in the poem, and yet there is this title, which strongly suggests the thrush. The poem begins with a section called The House by the Sea. The houses I had they took away from me. The times happened to be unpropitious. War, destruction, exile. Sometimes the hunter hits the migratory birds Sometimes he doesn't hit them. Hunting was good at my time. Many felt the pellet, the rest circle aimlessly or go mad in the shelters. Um, so this strong association of refugee life with the plight of migratory birds who are constantly subject to hunters and to traps. This first section also name checks cities, Smyrna, Rhodes, Syracuse, Alexandria, there is a second section, Sensuous Elpinor, one of uh, Odysseus' companions, um, where we listen to a phonograph. And on the gramophone, there is a quotation of made-up popular song, which has the perfume of pine and bird song, though again, no thrushes are mentioned in this poem, explicitly described as, titled as thrush. The third section describes the fantastic underwater wreck. So this is a transport that is sunk in World War II, um, named the Thrush, and he is on the island of Poros looking at this underwater ship, this shipwrecked Mediterranean shipwreck. The masts broken sway at odd angles deep underwater like tentacles, or the memory of dreams marking the hull, vague mouth of some huge dead sea monster extinguished in the water, calm spread all around. The shipwreck description is immediately followed by a nekia, um, a communication with the dead. But it is not an Eliot communication with the dead. There is no yellow fog. Um, it's not Homer exactly. It's not Dante. It is very Seferis. And gradually, in turn, other voices followed, whispers thin and thirsty emerging from the other side of the sun, the dark side. You might say they longed for a drop of blood to drink, Familiar voices, but I couldn't distinguish one from the other. And the voice of the old man reached me. I felt it quietly falling in the heart of day as though motionless. And here's the voice of the old man. And if you condemn me to drink poison, I thank you. Your law will be my law. How can I go wandering from one foreign country to another, a rolling stone? I prefer death. This man, of course, is not Tiresias or Stetson, it's not Mr. Eugenides, it's Socrates, who preferred suicide to exile. It's a sentiment, no doubt, that a weary exile or a refugee is familiar with and even sympathetic to. Um, the poem, which is date lined um, 1946, it is after World War II, but it is the beginning of the Greek Civil War. The poem ends with a section called simply light, phos. One of the most powerful Greek words um, that Seferis recognizes as com coming directly and undiminished from Homer, and he writes about phos in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. Phos is a section that's brightly lit with dark shadows. There are images that could be from Poros or Scala of boys diving from bowsprits into the Aegean. The classical references which include references to Thebes, are not the Tiresias of Thebes from the wasteland, but to references to civil war, to Ateocles and Polynices, the brothers who fight in the seven against Thebes, and to poor Antigone, who is caught up. There is the chirping of birds and pine trees and thrumming cicadas, those insects Socrates considered as belonging to the muses. These are images that have returned from Marina and the wasteland. But the music here is entirely Greek. The titivisma of the birds, the thrum of the sea, and finally, a host of T's, K's, X's, and T's, as he lets us hear the cicadas 
just at the moment they cease. Um, I will just point out that he wrote this in this house, um, this beautiful red house by the sea in Poros. Um, and he says that this Pompeian red house gave to me for the first time in many years the feeling of a solid building rather than the temporary tent. So this is the voice of a constant exile refugee. The poem ends, and you find yourself in a large house with many windows open, running from room to no room, not knowing where to look out first. And again, this is very similar um, to what he would have seen out of the window in Scala, this Aegean blue and the bows of the ships. You don't know where to look first because the pine trees will vanish and the mirrored mountains and the chirping of birds. The sea will drain dry shattered glass from north and south. Your eyes will empty of daylight the way the cicadas suddenly all together fall silent. That is how the poem ends, although in Greek it ends with the cicadas. Pos stamatun xafnika ke olamazi ta tzitzikia. And that's where I will end also.